Okay, now, it's lesson one. It is uh, October the 9th, and uh, this is our discussion time. Let's uh, open in prayer. Our Father, we thank you for your word. We thank you for uh, your diligence and your supervision of it in uh, bringing it to us. We know that we can trust you. We know that uh, we do not have to trust men. And we know that uh, even our own judgment is faulty and biased. But we know that you are gracious and good, and that it is your desire for us to know truth. And Father, if we trust you, we know that we will be safe. We place our trust in you. ask you to guide our discussion, guide our thoughts, guide our study time, so that all things may bring honor and glory to you, and that the name of Yeshua may be lifted up and praised. We pray in Yeshua's name. Amen. Uh, before we get started, let's, uh, if, if you know it, you're welcome to join in. Let's uh, uh, say the blessing. Uh, let's bless the Lord before the uh, reading of the Torah. Baruch Adonai Hamvorach, Baruch Adonai Hamvorach, Leolam Ba'ed, Baruch Adonai, Elohim Melech HaOlam, Asher Bachabanu Mikohamim, Venatan Lanu Et Torato, Baruch Adonai, Nochein HaTorah, Amen. Bless Adonai who is blessed. Blessed is Adonai who is blessed forever. Blessed art thou, Adonai, King of the universe, who gave to us, who, who chose us from all the peoples and gave to us his Torah. Blessed art thou, Adonai, giver of the Torah. Amen. All right. Not too bad a homework, was it? No, was all right. I was a little afraid at first, but after I got into it, I thought, well, this is pretty easy. But if you believed Moses, this is Yeshua speaking, but if you believed Moses, you would have believed me, for he wrote about me. But if you do not believe his writings, how will you believe my words? John 5, 46 through 47. What does that possibly have to do with the book of Hebrews? What was I thinking? He just ran into the This is my worst belief. That's actually the whole Amen. It really is. Yeah. It's not this or this, but rather this. To teach you this. That's right. That's right. It's very difficult. We're going to go through some of the difficulties as as I outlined for you in the introduction. Actually, the in the introduction in the first part of lesson one. Um, our our task is made difficult because we come to things with a clear uh, bias, not. Not, not malicious in most cases, certainly not malicious of those people who taught us, uh, or the people that taught them even. In no way are we, are, we, uh, are we saying that people maliciously have passed this teaching or this approach, I shouldn't say teaching, this approach to these scriptures. However, we could say at some point there was certainly something malicious that was going on. What we would have to say is that the maliciousness is, is a desire for the enemy for us not to see the truth. I am not, a, I am not the one that spotted the truth. The truth was always there. And uh, it is not our job merely to uh, re- regurgitate what we've learned, but rather to uh, be diligent to learn the truth for ourselves. Um, and we will. Uh, Hebrews 8, 5 and 
10.1, speak of the shadows. This is a review we talked about just shortly last week. Notice you guys have moved far away from the uh, hot projector there. Um, spoke of shadows and, the, and in the Torah and in the tabernacle system, not speaking necessarily of those only, but that's the general idea, the shadows in the Torah and the tabernacle system. The second century, century church fathers, of course, saw the word shadows and immediately picked up on the Plato uh, connotation and ran with it. And, and when we get when we get to the to the third and the fourth century, they're running with it, not only just you know uh, tacitly playing with it, they are embracing it wholeheartedly. So we get Origen and Augustine, who are who are essentially calling Plato a a, a believer, as if it were even possible. Um, so, but in this game of shadows being a, a negative, in other words, the shadow is not the real thing. A shadow is not real. It's not tangible. But it gives a picture. It gives an outline of something that is real. Um, but what we discovered is we discovered in our short little, little, uh, you know, uh, little talk about shadows last week that shadow is actually a good thing. And it's being used in a good way. In this, pat, in this book, in these two places, in Acts chapter, in Hebrews chapter 8 and chapter 10, and also in Colossians, it's being used in a good way. It's not being denigrating. It's in fact saying, these give us the outline. They give a picture. A picture is worth a thousand words. Um, so what is the shape? What is the shadow? Who is casting this shadow? Who's casting this shadow that we're reading about in this book of Hebrews? I, I should have said what just to throw you off, but who is casting the shadow? That's right. It's him. He cast the shadow. How is the shadow being cast in the shape of a temple? I saw an interesting graphic uh, today. I was doing some research online, and somebody made a comment uh, in their in their research about uh, the um, the bowls of wrath being poured out following Revelation chapter 15. And the graphic showed a picture as just like my picture of the second temple, and the bowl of wrath being poured out on it. And what a twisted theology that would even conceive that the wrath being poured out would be poured out on the very system that was established by God. But that's what it was. You know, it's a twisted, twisted view of things. Um, approaching scripture with a preconceived theology, like we all do, will blind us. We have to be very careful not to allow our theology to be thrown off by things. At the same time, we should not approach Scripture with the desire to make things fit. We, we usually do, and we have to be careful and, and, and try to minimize it as best we can. Keeping our minds open, not to every wind of doctrine, but keeping our minds open to the Scriptures. Sometimes that means being, in our mind, a little simple... Stupid, yeah. It's like, oh, okay, I'm going to take it literally here. It doesn't make any sense literally, but I'll take it literally anyway. Wow, I never thought of it that way. <laughs> exactly. You know, it's, it's hard as a Bible student to know when you can put it down and say, oh, I feel good about that, without having come to some orderly excellent oh yeah if it doesn't you you can't put it that's exactly right a bible student should be content with having studied the bible (laughs) what'd you learn new I don't know (laughs) but it was a worthwhile exercise in worship yeah absolutely that's exactly what I feel about it Uh, Hebrews uh, 5 11 through you know I didn't bring my bible down Janet, can you hand me yours? 
Yeah. Hebrews 5, 11 through 14. This is a big Bible. Actually, I have Hebrews in my book here, don't I? What a silly man I am. Was that a weird version or what? Um, Concerning him, we have much to say. And it is hard to explain, since you have become dull of hearing. For though by this time you ought to be teachers, you you have need again for someone to teach you the elementary principles of the oracles of God. And you have come to need milk and not solid food. For everyone who partakes only of milk is not accustomed to the word of righteousness, for he is an infant. But solid food is for the mature, who because of practice have, have, have their senses trained to discern good and evil. Who does this person think they are after they have, if you've read this book, all of a sudden you think you're reading it going, good grief, how complex is this? And he has the gall to tell them, you people are stupid. You should be teaching people. What's your problem? I'm reading it going, these people are some, the recipients either were really up there, he was really talking overhead, then he has the gall to turn around and tell them, you don't really know very much. I'm just laying the simple stuff out for you. Right? This is a proof. If there ever was a proof, this is a proof that we, in our culture, are approaching this from the opposite direction that they were. They had, they had basic understanding that we don't have, although we may have some basic understanding they didn't have. And the and the, and what we're what we're seeing is we're seeing a a basically uh, maybe arriving at the same destination but coming from two different directions. And for them who are steeped in temple and tabernacle imagery, for them it maybe wasn't as clear as it is for us looking at it and going. But then at the same time, some of the things we're learning about that imagery as we read it, we're going, "Wow, man, slow down! This is too much information." And he's telling them, this is the simple stuff. Y'all should have already gotten this. And we're going, I had no idea. <laughs> you said to read through it. And even in that Hebrew angel, I mean, I'm reading through it, and you know, we're looking at one another going, what does that mean? Exactly. Is it complex or what? It's very complex. Yeah. So as a complex book, we can understand that when he tells them these are elementary things, obviously we are either really, really behind <laughs> or we're coming, and it's my, my view that we're not, but we're coming from it from a different perspective. And this is what we want to do is we want to do our best to try and see their perspective to see why it is that he's trying to encourage them to get up to speed. Uh, we talked about just real quickly these this, these two meta- metaphors is this theistic uh, Platonism, and we see the either or you know the the circles it's either physical or it's spiritual this this Greek philosophy this this dualism as it were that permeates all of our thinking as Western as Western educated people even Eastern educated people have the same problem it's a man problem but especially Western education thrives on this and teaches this 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 uh, the difference between what's spiritual and physical physical's bad spiritual's good. Um, law or grace uh, you can't have both and yet ironically they're right within the Torah the law is grace manifested uh, incredibly Um, temple system or Yeshua you can't have both and we're going to look at why these are important to distinguish not as either ors but as somehow and I'm not saying how there are good either ors in scripture 
very good ones. We just need to be careful where we decide what we're gonna, what we're gonna fight over. Right? And especially when things are complementary, we shouldn't be fighting over them. Uh, a perfect example would be the temple system, which was complementary, was pointing to Yeshua. Uh, and then we see the visual metaphor in Hebrews. We get to chapter 9, we're going to go over this in detail. It is, in my view, the answer to unlock all of the pictures that he's playing with throughout the book. And it's the overlapping of the spiritual and the physical. The visible, what you see and what you don't see. Just like the makeup of man. I'm a person and yet you do not see all of me. In fact, we even go so far as to say, you don't see me at all. Well, that's not true either. Who's the real me? Well, I am physical and spiritual, both. And in perfect union, uh, in balanced in union, that is the man of God. The woman of God are balanced between the physical and spiritual. Who, what, when, where, why? Okay, don't look up there. I've made the mistake of having them all come out at once and I need to slip switch back here, don't I? No looking, no looking. I should, there should be, have come out one at a time and they didn't. Okay. Who wrote the book? Just based on what you read. Was not someone who necessarily had been with Jesus and had heard him. Okay, so somebody who didn't... Does everybody hear that? Did everybody agree? Is somebody who didn't... Wasn't an eyewitness to the ministry of Yeshua. He got passed to him. Where is that? And why do we know that? Anybody have a reference? Uh, yeah. Chapter 2? Yes. Where he says, we, we heard. It was passed and we heard. Right? We heard. It was spoken to us by those who were witnesses. Right? Remember I told you go back and look at Luke? Luke uses that same argument, doesn't he? Okay, this is not, I'm not a first-hand witness, but I am a second-hand witness, and their witness is true. Okay? Um, who received the book? Someone who was not in Italy. Someone who was not in Italy is actually the most correct answer. And, and a group that had been persecuted. Okay. They were believers. They had been persecuted. Yes, very good. And they probably owned land in Israel. They probably owned land in Israel. That's probably a good guess. Another good guess is that they were intimately, intimately involved in the tabernacle system. Now, the writer in the book of Hebrews does not speak of temple. He speaks of tabernacle, which is actually the more politically correct thing to say, even speaking of the temple. So do not don't be thrown off by it. He's saying the system of the tabernacle, the temple system that they're involved in, but he calls it the tabernacle system and the priest and the sacrifices. They're intimately uh, acquainted with them. Mm-hmm. Okay. What else? In the way he's writing, it's like whoever he's writing is having a real hard time reconciling what they are seeing right now and the teachings of Yeshua. Good. They're having just a real hard time bringing all of this together. And which goes back to what we were talking about. You know, we look at it and go, come on, it's pretty clear. It kind of points to him, doesn't it? I mean, we can talk about it, but it wasn't so clear to them. Good. Excellent. There also seems to be, for some reason, an incredibly strong temptation by the receivers of the, of the letter to not only try and tie something in with Yeshua, but to reject him entirely. Well, let me ask you this. Does the writer ever question... Does the writer ever feel like he has to get them to admit or to stick to the fact that Yeshua is Messiah? 
his is his messiahship ever in question in the book? Does he ever say, "Hey, let me convince you he's the Messiah"? In the first couple chapters, he sort of plays around with some of that. Something of he, he actually we're going to look at it, he, but he talks about messianic titles. But he, does he ever try to convince you he's the Messiah? He doesn't. That's a given, which is really important to remember. Really important to remember. These recipients have no problem with him being Messiah. They just don't maybe know what Messiah means. I think it let the struggle in some ways with them trying to understand Yeshua. And they're having some trouble with that, I think. But it's not so much that. It's more like they're having the temptation to say, Yeshua's not that big a deal. Even though we get who he said he was, even though we get who he's supposed to be, we might not need him anyway. Excellent. Or maybe it's not, maybe we need him, but maybe we don't need him in the way that all the Gentiles claim to be needing him. Which kind of goes back to who, who, who are the recipients. Um, the book is written to the Hebrews. Can we assume that the book's title is, is divinely inspired? Normally we wouldn't. However, there are actually manuscripts that actually contain the, the, those two words at the very beginning of the book. To the Hebrews. In times past. Where was the book written from? Most likely Italy. How do we know that it was most likely written in Italy? I would expect the Italians in the group to have picked up on this. Yes, thank you very much. Yeah. <laughs> um, going back again to yes, thank you very much. Going back again to who, to who wrote the book. What else do we get? Some picture of maybe one of. What circle that this person ran in? He's in the Pauline circle. He's in the Pauline circle. Because, because very good, he's been in chains. He knows Timothy. He's, and here's a big one. His, his recipients know him really well. And Timothy. And Timothy. And because we know Timothy was just released, we can get the time down. Great. When was it written? Between 60 and 70 Okay, why do you, why'd you say 60? Well, because Daddy said Timothy would have been that was, so That's always the right answer for a son. <laughs> um, Daddy said Timothy was released right after Paul died. Paul died between 60 and 65. That's right. We have no record of Timothy ever being in prison, but we also, because we have no record, Acts ends with Paul being in, under house arrest. We have to assume that he was imprisoned after Paul. And Paul, Paul was two years in prison in Caesarea and then two years in prison in Rome which would make it 62 so from 58 when he was first arrested in Jerusalem until he was most likely possibly it could have been later but the earliest would be 62 that he was killed then martyred then Timothy would have had to be in prison after that and Paul had written to Timothy and said bring your stuff before winter excellent and, and you said 70 at the outside. Why 70? Because it had to be before the temple was destroyed because there was, well, Daddy said there was a uh, hint of 
There's a lot of hints of templism. That's right. There, the, the tabernacle system is, is being referred to in the present tense. Now, I, I'll just tell you that, that, that just because it's in the present tense doesn't guarantee it because a true, a true person who studies the scriptures doesn't speak of things in the past tense. They are ongoing even when they're not ongoing. Besides, the writer never mentions the destruction of the temple. Which actually would have give, given him some... Well, we'll talk about that in a second. But would have given him some some fodder. some fodder, maybe. Look, you know, here's the proof that there's a greater tabernacle. Yeah. Uh, but to be fair, it, it it is acceptable to say that it was. It doesn't destroy the argument of the book at all to say that it's possibly destroyed. The temple is possibly destroyed. However, the outside is 95 because. Uh, um, Eusebius quotes, actually Eusebius quotes, uh, actually no, Clement I of, of Rome. There's two Clements. Clement I of Rome actually quotes part of this book. And Clement I is dated to 95. So we know that's the latest, the possible latest it could be. So from 60, probably to 66 when the Jewish revolt actually began, possibly as late as 95. Okay? The book was not accepted by some early on. Uh, in some of the early canons, some of the later canons, the early canons it was. Um, and the reason why is because it was usually circulated along with the Epistle of Barnabas. The Epistle of Barnabas is a known forgery. It's a uh, pseudogryph. It's, and it's actually it's a very bad book. Um, however, the Epistle of Barnabas and the book of Hebrews were found together at the back of uh, Sinaiticus, the Codex Sinaiticus, the the one of the principal documents that modern translations use for the for the uh, apostolic scriptures. So it it, it it was included, but it was included out of order. It was included. And Barnabas was with it. So yeah. Well, that just gives me a whole lot of confidence in Sinaiticus anyway. They're good. Every time he got ready to write anything. So I'm wondering if whoever wrote Hebrews was so well known to people that this was being fiction that he didn't even need to identify himself. That's good. That's an excellent. That's an excellent point. From this person. It's an excellent point. It's also possible. Part of that too is for one reason Paul used identifies himself is because people are oftentimes challenging his authority. Whoever wrote this obviously has his authority established. Workers. Um, another interesting thing about the, um, the other interesting thing about the I told him that. I told him that. The other interesting thing about, about that is uh, that um, there are only a handful of books in the uh, Apostolic Scriptures that don't have an author listed at least by a pseudonym. Um, and I think those are Matthew, Mark, this one, and first John. I think those are all. Correct. Yeah, and... It's it's a it is appalling book. There's no question. The, the, it's 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 laid out like a Pauline book. It reminds me a lot of Romans and Galatians. Um, however, the Greek is pristine. It's the best Greek in all of the Apostolic Scriptures. Not that I would know, but that's what I'm told. It's just absolutely crisp Greek. Um, and Paul was really really bad. Paul never wrote without using the personal pronoun. That's right. We do hear we in chapter 13, don't we? We do hear him say we. And, and 
Yeah, and but so there's a, so there's an indication that this that the writer here is considering himself to be writing for more than one person, which is my hint that it's someone in the Pauline circle, and that Paul is not maybe maybe not a principal maybe not a principal uh, contributor, but his thought is a contributor, and maybe there are multiple contributors in the writing of this book. Okay, do we have to know who wrote it? That's why Luther did, didn't want the book, because he said, well, I don't know who wrote this, so... Actually, we do know the writer of the book, and that was the Spirit of God. Absolutely, absolutely. Let me, tell you, let me tell you, just so that you know, there are, there, is, there are some in Messianic circles that reject the book of Hebrews mm-hmm. as scripture. Yeah. Yes. Yeah. Yeah, I won't name their names. Uh, if I did, you'd know who I was talking about. Um, however, but let me tell you, the, to be fair, they reject it for the reasons that it should be rejected, Unfortunately, they're rejecting it with a poor understanding of what it's saying. They're taking the critic's word for it. Okay? And we'll talk about it as we get into it. Because the critics, if the, if the critics are correct, it should be rejected. Because it turns over and undoes what God has already said. He, has, he doesn't change. But the critics are wrong. And I want to, I want to, I believe this book actually is not just approved. This book is a, an, ex, an extraordinarily important book for us to study, for us to unlock actually all of the apostolic scriptures, because it, it, it deals with some very important points. Okay, Eusebius tells us that Clement of Alexandria attributes the book to Paul. The King James, the authorized version, 1611, actually listed Paul as the, as the author. It says at the very beginning, the epistle of Paul to the Hebrews. Um, it, it, in my King James, it's at, it's at the end of the book. It says, written to the Hebrews from Italy by Paul. <laughs> Is that what yours says? Yeah. Uh-huh. That's right. That's right. Uh, we're going to see that was actually the more common accepted premise, and probably because the King James was so powerful in, in, in a singular force, it was the it was the common premise for most up until modern times. Okay. Um, but but really quite fa- to be to be fair, it, it, the Greek is is not Pauline Greek. If Paul wrote this book, then somebody else cleaned it up. The Holy Spirit would have would have been a part of that. Don't don't misunderstand. Um, however, Clement claims that the book was written in Hebrew by Paul or Aramaic. Uh, it was written in the Semitic uh, uh, a Semitic language. And then someone else translated it. Most likely, if that's the case, it would be Luke. The writer knows Timothy and is known to the recipients. The writer uses a lot of information found only in the Mishnah. This is an amazing thing. Part of the problem with this book, where most, where many, not all, I shouldn't say all, but many modern commentators where they miss it on this book is, they do not overlay this book with extant Jewish texts. If they did, they would be astounded that it's written in Greek. Because it doesn't read like a Greek document; it reads like Mishnaic. It's it's like it's like reading it's like reading Hebrew stuff. It's very very, and the information contained in it. We're going to go into it when we get into it. There's information in here that is not in the Torah. It comes from oral Torah. It comes from Mishnah. He's telling us stuff that was known only to priests. Does that help to support Clement's claim? Of a Hebrew text? No, Paul was not a priest. However, Paul has... has I mean, the the, uh, the Mishnah. Yes, possibly. 
possible. Could have been a Hebrew thought, Hebrew written, Hebrew document. No question. And then no question. I, I, I just want to, I don't think it's important to ever have a Hebrew original for any of the apostolic scriptures. It doesn't matter. God gave it to us. He, he protected it. He gave it to us just as we have it. We, we know that for a fact that translations, although they may not be divinely inspired, they are superintended by God because we know that. Because who, do, who does, who, where is all the quotes in the apostolic scriptures from? It's from the Greek Septuagint. So obviously the translations are not only acceptable, they are good. So, it doesn't have to be in the original Hebrew. But it could have been. It, it's not really important, but it may help us get a grasp. This is more important, is to get a grasp is where is this coming from, and to whom was it written, and why? There's a little bit of a question if it's written in Greek. If it's written to Hebrews living in Jerusalem, that, that, might, that they might treat it being written in Greek as suspicious. And why would you, re- why would you write to Hebrews? In Greek. Yeah. Um, right. Um, who received it? Earliest manuscripts, like I said, says to, actually says two Hebrews in Greek at the top. Uh, chapter five, twelve, as we looked at, indicates as not to young believers, which that would go along with people living probably in the in the in the land somewhere. Not young believers. They are intimately acquainted with the Temple of Tabernacles. So that means they're not most likely people who travel only three times a year to Jerusalem. Uh, Acts six one though kind of gives us a better gra- grasp of this. Go there real quickly, and and we're we're going to make, and it is an assumption. We're going to make an assumption, and uh, if it doesn't bear out, that's fine. But we're going to make an assumption on chapter six uh, on six one as to the recipients, and then we'll see how it follows through. Now, in those days, when the number of the disciples was multiplying, there arose a complaint against the Hebrews by the Hellenists because their widows were neglected in the daily distribution. There's two groups of people being named here. They're both groups are Jewish. Both groups are living in Jerusalem. One group is identified as what? Hebrew. And another group is identified as Hellenist. What's a Hellenist? Someone who speaks Greek. Oh, actually, we would speak of it someone who's assimilated Greek culture. We, we can't say that here. It's probably just, it means Greek speakers. Okay? Uh, Hellenist would not have been a positive term. Okay? But neither would Hebrews, Hebrew be a positive term here either. These are the names most likely given to these people by the opposite. Hellenists call the others Hebrews, and the Hebrews call the others Hellenists. Mainly, most likely, because of the language that they use as their primary language. Okay? So, when we get that idea, and by the way, Paul does the same thing. He says, I'm a Hebrew, 1 Corinthians there in, in Philippians chapter 3, 5, 2 Corinthians eleven twenty two. I'm a Hebrew of Hebrews. What does it mean to be a Hebrew of Hebrews? He's not saying I'm Jewish. I'm a Jew of Jews. That's, he's saying, look, if there was somebody who was steeped in Hebrew, it's me. I think in Hebrew. I think in Hebrew, yes. Yeah. I dream in Hebrew, yeah. <laughs> it's Hebrew speakers. Most likely... And, and you will find this there's a few exceptions to this most likely people would say these are Judeans or Jerusalemites okay uh, another theory is they're, they're a group of, of Hebrew speakers who have been um, uh, banished to Antioch uh, 
but the predominant would be that they are Jerusalemites or Judeans. Uh, when was it written? Uh, we see this reference to Timothy, and, and so as we saw there, and also 2 Timothy uh, 4.21, where Paul says, bring, your, bring the stuff, come before winter. So we see it's most likely written uh, between 62 and 66, although it could have been as late as 95, and from Italy is where it was written from. Why? Why was the book written? Did anybody get anything from what you were reading as to a purpose? Was there, was there an overriding purpose? Can you come up with a single purpose? He spends a lot of time um, telling them to persevere um, with respect to Yeshua. And he spends a lot of time strongly encouraging them to not fall into sin and not be like um, those who went into the wilderness and then because of their unbelief very good. Chapter 3 and 4. Excellent. Any others? In chapter 6, he offers a lot of things that you have already a foundation for the press on. Pressing on. Um, that um, they're persuaded that there's better things for you. And that's a follow-on to ch- and then to chapter 5 what we read is like maturity, right? right. Um, and 11 and 12 and 6 desire each uh, to show diligence not to be sluggish but imitators uh, those who inherited the promise. Who does that sound like? Imitators? That sounds like Paul, doesn't yeah. it? Uh, in 18 to have a strong encouragement to take hold of the hope that is set before us. That sounds like Paul too. Yeah. The great a lot of witnesses in the race picture also sounds like Paul. And then in eight, the beginning of 8, we have such a great high priest of the true sanctuary pitched by the word. So, in other words, let's study this. Very good. Excellent. I agree. I agree. Would you consider this book to be a rebuke or an encouragement? I think it's very much an encouragement. It reminds me a lot of both the books of Galatians and First John. Um, where the issue isn't the writer is not telling them you blew it it's over he's telling them you, it's sort of like you're hanging by a thread keep on you're, it's, in da- it's, not, it's sort of in doubt not kind of but you have the right thing stick with it don't slip up now Good. so that's an encouragement an exhortation and actually that's what he says in chapter 13 he says I write this letter and actually the word letter is epistle that's where they get epistle to Hebrews I write this letter of exhortation so it's, 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 meant, it's meant as an encouragement. You'd be surprised when we read some of the things that people wrote about this book that it was ever meant as an encouragement because it sure doesn't enc- sound encouraging the way they refer, refer to it. Um, Hebrews 12, verse 18. I had us go through this. Let's go through it again real quickly and then we'll uh, look at Acts a little bit before we quit. <laughs> Hebrews chapter 12, and I'm going to read from the New King James just because I have it in, the, in your workbook this way. Page 7 in your workbook. Hebrews 12, 18 through 24. And I will use my own intonation to help you hear the way that some people want you to hear this. Okay? You have not come to the mountain that may be touched, that burned with fire into blackness and darkness and tempest, the sound of a trumpet and the voice of words, so that those who heard it begged that the words should not be spoken to them anymore. 
For if they could not endure what was commanded, for they could not endure what was commanded, if so much as a beast touches a mountain, it shall be stoned or shot with an arrow. And so terrifying was the sight that Moses said, I am exceedingly afraid and trembling. But you've come to Mount Zion, the city of the living God, the heavenly Jerusalem, to an innumerable company of angels, to the general assembly and the church of the firstborn, who are registered in heaven, to the God, the judge of all, to the spirits of just men made perfect, to Jesus, the mediator of the new covenant, and to the sprinkling, the blood of sprinkling that speaks better than the things than that of Abel. I'm, I, obviously, this is the Word of God, and we shouldn't laugh at the Word of God. But that's what we want people, that's what some people want us to, how they want us to read it. Here's the dichotomy. They want us to see a dualism, okay? What do we see? Two mountains, one Sinai. That's mean. You know, it's, you can touch it. It's physical. If it's physical, it must be bad. Right? And the other Zion, it's in heaven. You can't see it. Spiritual. It's better. The principle, heaven is better, and has replaced Sinai. Well, I'd say heaven is better, but let's move on. Two messages. One is God's voice at Sinai. With fire and darkness. Everybody's scared to death. It's mean. That voice is strong. It's, it's frightening. But now, we have a new voice. And it's just a voice that speaks of love. Two emotions. The terror from Sinai. And then there's the emotion of just having peace. So which would you choose? He's making a point. Choose one. You can have Sinai or heaven. You choose. Never in this book does the writer tell them to leave Sinai behind. If that's the picture that he's drawn. Never in this book does he say, listen, Judaism is going to get you in trouble. You need to quit it. Go back and read it again. You'll never find it. What is he doing? The, co- the context or out of context, what he's doing here is law is bad, grace is good, old is bad, new is good, physical is bad, invisible is good, or excuse me, invisible, spiritual is good. The God of the Old Testament is scary. The God of the New Testament, that's Jesus, is nice. Well, it's, it's no wonder if that's the religion that's being purported to be the religion of the God of Abraham, Isaac, and, and, and Jacob, and of Yeshua, that people would say, well, Jesus is a new God then. That's what you're saying. Which is why in the Talmud, the passage that is dedicated towards teaching against Christian doctrine is called idol worship. That's the name of the, the, the tractate, is, is idol worship. But, if we had kept reading, as you did in your homework, if you kept reading, you can see that, in fact, that's not the argument he's making at all. See that you do not refuse him who speaks, starting in verse 25. For if they did not escape who refused him on earth, much more shall we not escape if we turn away from him who speaks from heaven, whose voice then shook the earth, but now he has promised, saying, once more, I will shake not only the earth, but also heaven. 
Now this, yet once more, indicates the removal of those things from being shaken, of, as of things that are made, the things that which not, cannot be shaken may remain. Therefore, since we have received a kingdom which cannot be shaken, let us have grace by which we may serve God acceptably with reverence and godly fear. Why? Because the God that spoke from Sinai is the same God. The voice that spoke was the same voice that we hear now. And if in fact someone died because they touched the mountain then, would he not do the same now? Why? Because our God is a consuming fire. Is a consuming fire. It's not two messages, it's one. It's not two mountains, it's one. It's actually two mountains, however they are one, they are pictures. Sinai is a picture of Zion. Do you remember what Zion was like? Excuse me, do you remember what Sinai is like? Zion's more. The irony is that most people compare the two and argue that the second is gentler and nicer than the first. It's the other way around. And the author says, It's the other way around. Or, not will grace and love be for you, but will the punishment be if you don't hear Excellent. the speaker? Did you see that all the way through the book? Actually, every time he starts playing this how much more thing, it's like, it's going to be worse now if you don't follow through. Yeah. There's one message, not two. This is really important. When we begin to somehow believe that the Bible has two messages, we have missed the point. There's one message. The same voice speaks. How much more, if we abandon our walk with Yeshua, will we have no hope? One emotion, not two. Godly fear is a powerfully good emotion. It's not bad. Because godly fear mobilizes us. And you can see how this book teaches something, could be used to teach something that isn't. Now let me read, let me just tell you, before I read this, I have utmost respect for Matthew Henry. But I want to read you what Matthew Henry says about this passage. Here the apostle, he speaks like it's Paul, here the apostle goes on to engage the professing Hebrews to, to perseverance in their Christian course and conflict, and not to relapse again into Judaism. Is that anachronistic? What's he talking about? Where does it talk about Judaism there? This he does by showing them how much the state of the gospel church differs from that of the Jewish church and how much it resembles the state of the church in heaven and on both accounts demands and deserves our diligence, patience and perseverance in Christianity. He shows how much the gospel church differs from the Jewish church and how much it excels. And here we have a very particular description of the state of the church under the Mosaic dispensation. It was a gross, sensible state. Mount Sinai, in which the church state was constituted, was a mountain that may be touched, a gross, palpable place. So was the dispensation. It was very much external, earthly, and so much more heavy. Is that what you read? (laughs) I got the opposite. Which is heavier? Zion. So much more heavy. The state of the gospel church on Mount Zion is more spiritual. Rational. Ooh, that's a key word, especially when you're looking at things in a Greek way. Rational and easy. Excuse me, uh, uh, Matthew Henry. Um, The end of that passage says, For our God is a consuming fire. It was a dark dispensation. Upon that mount there were blackness and darkness, and that church state, speaking of Israel, was covered with dark shadows and types. 
the gospel state is much more clear and bright. It was a dreadful and terrible dispensation. The Jews could not bear the terror of it. The thunder and the lightning, the trumpet sound, the voice of God himself speaking to them, struck them with such dread that they, they entreated that the word might not be spoken to them anymore. By the way, if you look at God's own comments on that, he said, the people have spoken well. The gospel state is mild. Could have surprised me that this is written by a Presbyterian. An old-time Presbyterian probably preached hellfire brimstone from the pulpit. The gospel state is mild and kind and condescending, suited for our weak frame. It was a limited dispensation. All Speaking of the, the mountain, it was a limited dispensation. All might not approach that mount, but only Moses and Aaron. Under the gospel, we have access with boldness to God. I would counter that the access that we have is no different. It's through a priest, a high priest. In this case, our high priest is better, but it's still through a priest. It was a very dangerous dispensation. The mount burned with fire. Whatever man or beast touched the mount must be stoned or thrust through with a dart. It is true, it will always be dangerous to be for presumptuous and brutish sinners to draw near to God. I'm glad he added that. But it is not immediate and certain death as it is here. This was the state of the Jewish church. Fitted to awe a stubborn and hard-hearted people to set forth the strict and tremendous judgment of God. To wean, this is his reason for Sinai, to wean the people of God from that dispensation and induce them to more readily embrace the sweet and gentle economy of the gospel church and adhere to it. He shows how much the gospel church represents the church triumphant in heaven. What communication there is between one and the other. The gospel church is called Mount Sinai, the heavenly Jerusalem, which is free in opposition to Mount Sinai, which tendeth to bondage. This was the hill on which God set his king Messiah. Now, in coming to Mount Zion, believers come to the heavenly places, to a heavenly society. He speaks now more powerfully and effectually. Speaking of God, speaks now more powerfully and effectually. Isn't that nice? He's learned, I guess. This, then indeed his voice shook the earth, but now, by introducing the gospel state, he hath shaken not only the earth, but the heavens. I would say that God's voice always shook the heavens and the earth. Not only shaking the hills and the mountains or the spirits of men or the civil state and land of Cain to make room for his people, not only shaking the world as he, as he then did, but he has shaken the church, that is the Jewish nation. Notice he's not shaking Matthew Henry's church. And shaking them in their church state, which is the Old Testament. Times a heaven on earth. That their, heaven, that their heavenly spiritual state he hath now shaken. It is by the gospel from heaven that God shook to, piece, to pieces the civil and ecclesiastical state of the Jewish nation. Which is what I was talking about. He's pouring out his wrath on them. And introduced a new state of the church, which cannot be removed, shall never be changed. Okay, now he's saying God's not going to change this one now. He changed the old one, but he's not going to change this one. For any other on earth, but he shall remain till it be made perfect in heaven. Now here's his caveat to it all. God is the same just and righteous God under the gospel that he appeared to us under the law. Though he be our God in Christ and now deals with us in a more kind and gracious way. Yet he in himself is a consuming fire. In other words, God doesn't change but what he does does. God doesn't change but his actions have changed. His 
approach to us has changed. Well, not to us. Because we're the good guys. They're the bad guys. We're the good guys. Now, Matthew Henry, Janet said, I was reading this to her, and Janet said, how ironic, written by a Presbyterian, Puritan type, that this is the way the world looks at him now, as if he's the old, scary, your gospel was the scary gospel. It's now it's even, even more a gospel of niceness, isn't it? Anyway. If you can see, Matthew Henry is probably, for the last 300 years, is probably the single most used commentator on the scriptures, period. And, I mean, he's awesome. His stuff is just, I mean, it's, he's, he, 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 he wrote it almost as if it was, you know, you know, just like out of a shotgun. Just wrote it quickly and, and you know, huge volumes of work. But if this is our basis for understanding the book of Hebrews, as it is for most people, because that's where they start, Wow, what a scary thought. This is the importance and significance of going to the passage itself and not allowing your... Precisely. Now, but to be fair, Matthew Henry did. He was, he was an eminent Bible scholar. But he came at, with, at it from a perspective. His only perspective is Jews living in London, they, you know, you know, those, those, you know, they're dirty little synagogues. And, you know, what do they know? He also came from a perspective of Protestantism coming out of politics. Exactly. Which strongly influenced a lot of the Very good. Reformation activities. Exactly right. He was born right uh, within 100 years of the Reformation. Absolutely correct. To be fair, he was operating within his known sphere of knowledge and his culture. We want to do better. It's not our culture, so we're going to have to work hard. What we have seen is, in fact, that if you're going to argue to overturn the Judaic system, why does the writer never tell them to leave the Judaic system? Never. And as all of encouragements and exhortations, as he say, remember all that sacrifice stuff? Just knock it off. Y'all stop it. He doesn't say that. He's pointing to something greater. He's not pointing to something different. Joshua? And the closest he could ever get to that is in 13 verse 9 where he says, Be not carried of a God with diverse and strange doctrines. Well, so there you go. No one would really classify the first half of the Bible as diverse and strange doctrines. Excellent. Anytime we start explaining around away the first three quarters of a Bible by using the last quarter of a Bible, we have, we have it backwards. One of the things, one of the things that's really important in, in this picture of if this is, if this book was written to people who are intimate in knowledge of the sacrificial system and the Torah, would they have stood? Would they have been like the Bereans and listened to this teaching from this person and going, "Well, we studied the scriptures to see if what you said was true." If they approached it, if they heard it the way that Matthew Henry did it, let me tell you something: they should have. Close, roll the scroll up and said, sorry, we are no more noble than this. We will not listen to this kind of nonsense. Exactly what the Jews today do. Exactly. They say, wait a minute, our scriptures teach very clearly that if your Messiah is telling us to give up the Torah, he's not the Messiah. Deuteronomy chapter 13. God, God planted within the very scriptures a check for everything that would come after. And if it doesn't adhere to this, then it's not the truth. That's why if the book of Hebrews says what some people like Matthew Henry say it says, it shouldn't be scripture. But it is. Because it doesn't say that. But what does it say? We have to be careful because we don't want it to make it sound like it says anything. Just because it fits what we might want to make it say. Okay? Okay? 
We want to know what is he trying, what's his point? If his point isn't don't leave Judaism, what is his point? When was it written, or why was it written? We saw in, in chapter uh, uh, 13, verse 22, it was written as a letter of exhortation. We saw all these warnings, and it really encouragements, and, and, and Valerie touched on them as well, encouragements to dig deeper. Dig, it's, it's, it's a maturity that's being, they're being exhorted towards. A maturity. Okay? It is a going in further than you've ever been before. Um, what is it all about? Chapter 2, verse 5. And I know it seems kind of out of context. But if you will follow this theme throughout this book, I think, I know for myself, as I read this with this verse in mind, everything takes a, seems to take a different tack for me. Chapter 2, verse 5. For he has not put the, for he has not put the world to come of which we speak in subjection to angels. The world to come which, by the way, it just doesn't sound like much to you here. You know, it sounds like the end of a, of, of a funeral or something like that, you know, you know, in the world to come. Uh, that, that, Olam Haba, world to come, is a, not only common, but it's like an like almost overused phrase in, in Hebrew. I mean, it's all the time. Olam Haba. As contrasted, actually not as contrasted or, or separate, but as... As, as re- defined against Olam Hazeh, this present age. Okay? This present age, Olam Hazeh. Well, I put that same picture up that we've been using there. Olam Haba, world to come, that's in the middle. Olam Hazeh, present world, that's on the outside, the physical and the spiritual. So think of this as a continuing illustration as you go through. Let's go look at Acts real quickly, then we'll quit. Uh, Acts one twelve. What's it say? Acts one twelve. We're looking for Hebrewisms or Hebrewisms or whatever they are. Cultural things in the book of Acts to help us understand something. This book was written to Hebrews where we can find these Hebrews or these Hebrew believers, these first believers who spoke Hebrew, possibly Greek, uh, but Hebrew believers in the first century. Some things that help us understand their culture and who they are. And we read right away in, in Acts chapter one twelve where where Luke says they returned after the scepter Yeshua ascends into heaven they returned to Jerusalem from the mount called Olivet which is near Jerusalem a Sabbath day's journey I mean we read that and just and a lot of people just read that and assume well that's like that's an Old Testament thing it's not Never in Scripture does it ever tell us when a Sabbath day journey is, and yet the apostolic... Actually, if you want to know something, the only time you read a Sabbath day journey is in the apostolic Scriptures, not in the Old Testament. The Hebrew Scriptures don't talk about a Sabbath day journey. What is a Sabbath day journey? It's about a half a mile. But how do I know that? Because I've read the Mishnah. <laughs> That's what the rabbi says. That's what the rabbi says. A half a mile. What is it? It is basically a half a mile outside a walled city, and it's considered to be out outside the walls, half a mile. And it's basically is measured in stadia or parts of stadia. But it's basically the uh, uh, if you go beyond that, it's traveling. So you shouldn't, shouldn't do that on, on, on the Sabbath. Uh, is it mandated by the Word of God? No. But why does the writer of Luke? Or Acts, Luke, the, the writer of Acts, Luke, why does he say that? Why does he, why do you think it's important for us to know that they came down from Olivet, which is a Sabbath day journey from Jerusalem? 
does he do other stuff like that? I mean, why, why, why bring it up? What does it matter? What do you think? The culture he's working from. He's working from a culture. In fact, he's working from a culture that wants us to understand clearly that. By the way, any, I don't know if I've mentioned this before, but any time I come down from Olivet, you know that's just a Sabbath day journey, right? They <laughs> didn't. That's right. In other words, it's less than it's less than it's it's less than the maximum you could travel on the Sabbath. That's what they're saying, and that's why he wants us to know. I don't know if I've mentioned this before, but if ever I ever mentioned that Olivet in our discussions, I just want you to know that any time we did that it, on the Sabbath, it was less than half a mile. <laughs> Why? Why do I care? Well, it does matter then, right? Maybe not because it's a mandate by God, but his readers, or in this case, Theophilus, his reader, would have found that to be an important piece of information. No, it wasn't a Sabbath. No, no. no I think I think you'll find it was a Thursday. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, chapter two, verse one. Then the day of Pentecost had, when the day of Pentecost had fully come, had fully come. That seems like a quaint little English phrase, doesn't it? What's it mean? When the day of Pentecost had fully come, and they were all with one accord in one place. The fully come thing is a counting. Hey, there you go. You know, uh, anybody that reads this knowing about Shavuot knows. Hey, you know, Shavuot doesn't just creep up on you. <laughs> you count. Every day you count. Okay, another day. You're counting the Omer. For 50 days you count the Omer. That's exactly right. So it's, so it's, a, it's a counting thing. Well, that's a cultural thing, isn't it? Okay? Uh, and what culture is that? What Why culture was that? Why were they doing that? Yeah. Did they know better? Well, hopefully, hopefully they'll figure it out here shortly. Three years of that guy, and they're still counting. They still count the armor. Boy, didn't they know that that was a heavy thing? <laughs> we're gonna have to be. We're gonna have to be sarcastic, otherwise we'll lose our minds. So. Um, yeah. um, where are they? They're in one place. By the way, anytime you talk about one place in Hebrew, you're gonna be thinking Hamakom. The place. Hamakom. The place. What's the place? Harhabait. The mountain of the house. The house. It talks about a house here, doesn't it? And filled the whole house where they were sitting. Chapter 2, verse 2. The whole house. Now, it doesn't have to be the temple. But if it isn't the temple, it's going to have to be something like right there. Because suddenly there's a multitude gathered around them. And if you've ever been to Jerusalem, you know they ain't a multitude place to gather except the temple. I think i got a picture over here. There you go. This is a model on the left side. See the arrow going up? This is, that's the steps of ascent to the southern. Anytime a festival, uh, Passover, Shavuot, Pentecost, or... Uh, Sukkot, Tabernacles, the pilgrims would come up the steps past the city of David, up to the southern gates, the Hulda gates. Those are the Hulda gates, and that's families standing in the wall of Hulda gates. And if you want to know where the Kotel, the, uh, the western wall is, if you come over to the left, there's two arches. There's an arch in front, and behind it there's another arch. The Kotel, the western wall, is between those two arches. So they would have come up these steps. Singing. Singing, singing, singing the Psalms of Ascent. Yes, from the Psalms. 
Okay. Um, what's some other ones here? Uh, Leviticus 23.15, we saw that this Pentecost is, is, is a Christian holiday today. However, it wasn't then. <laughs> it didn't have to be borrowed. It didn't have to be made up. It didn't have to become a new holiday. It had been a holiday, a holy day, for 1,500 years. Yeah, what is that? 216. Uh, four, probably 1,400 before the common era. Uh, 3,400 years for us. Uh, 216. Here's another Hebraism. We're going to wrap it up here quick here. So. Uh, but what is... But this, speaking of... Uh, this is... Uh, no, this is not 216. Where is it? Is it 316? 2.15? Thank you. For these men are not drunk, as you suppose, Peter speaking, when they were speaking in tongues. These men are not drunk, as you suppose, since it is only the third hour of the day. What's the third hour of the day, which gives us a further indication of where they were, the house they were in. What's the third hour of the day? On Shavuot. Everybody that's in Jerusalem is going to be on the Temple Mount on the, at the third hour because that's the time of Shacharit. That's morning prayers. Everybody's going to be there. So we know by this account that that's really what clinches it for us. They're in the Temple. This is in the Temple. This takes place in the Temple which is a powerful picture for us because the new believers are going to find that place to be even more precious now. This is where he poured his spirit out on them. Where suddenly 3,000 of the people around him. Notice Yeshua's ministry, 100, 150. All of a sudden, there's 3,000 disciples. This was a powerful day for them. This is going to be a good place in their minds to keep coming back. Right? Uh, it says they were added. Uh, 237 through 40, 41 talks about these uh, um, uh, 41 through 47, excuse me. And then those who g- gladly received this word were baptized. Here I got a picture for that for you too. There's, this is, this is uh, on, the set, on the left side, those steps, those hold the gates. Right underneath the hold the gates, at the steps, there's mikvaot, all lined up. A dozen of them. And around the side, under those arches, there's these walk-in mikvah. We can walk in. These are immersion pools. Where were they baptized? Well, they didn't go down to the Jordan River. And this wasn't a new Christian thing. People, when they went up into the temple, they'd already been immersed. Right? So what they were being immersed for? Something changed. Something's changed. Exactly right. Something's changed. I've seen and experienced a new level of the presence of God. Exactly right. I'm recommitted. All those things. So immersion, or what we commonly refer to as baptism, is not a new thing. It's a very old thing, and it's right there. It's like it's archaeolo- I mean, it's always surprising. People walk up and go, "Oh, they look. They had baptismals." <laughs> yeah, you betcha they did. <laughs> oh, lost my place now. It doesn't. It doesn't back up as a problem. This thing you got to select the. It is. Okay. Uh, 
verse 47 and verse 41 it says and that day about 3,000 souls were added and in my in my Bible it has it in italics to them and then in verse 47 praising God and having favor with all the people and the Lord added to the in my Bible says the church daily those who are being saved what what, what What's your Bible say? Yours says church and where? Verse 47. What does the New American Standard Version say? Very good. Actually, this, this is from the, this is from the uh, Texas Receptus, which uses Ecclesia there. Yeah, right? Ecclesia. Ecclesia there. Whereas the majority text uses something different there. Okay? What were they added to? The assembly. What assembly? The one that King David's in. He mentions King David. The one I don't need to have formal membership into. That's right. All right. Exactly right. How, is it important that we define this and get it get it narrowed down to have offices and everything set up and all this? Not to say there aren't those, but is that important? No, that's not the point. That's not what he's saying. What he's saying is, you know those people that were gathered in, in, in the house, the hundred or so? They just grew. What do you mean they grew? Well, they were the ones who believed... And now there's more of them. All right, 115 has about 120 persons who are there together. And that was the early church. And now we've just added 3,000. And then we've added more. Have we got it? Acts 2 is not the birthday of the church. <laughs> it's not. It's not a new thing. It's an old thing. Our father Abraham was a member. <laughs> well, that's the question we asked when we were studying this week. When Peter stands up and, and, and gives a quote in 2.34, it was not David who ascended into heaven, but he himself says, the Lord said to my Lord. He, it, it appears to me that he is putting King David in the same group, oh, yes. calling Messiah Lord. Absolutely. Therefore, King David's in the group He's one of us. Yeah, we're claiming him. He's one of us. You know, y'all, y'all think he can have, but he's one of us. Sadly, that's what Matthew Henry did too. But to be fair, that's exactly what he did. He did not cut out Abraham and David, but he said, but they were Christians. They weren't a part of that other group. We have the wrong circle being drawn here, right? Anyway, uh, 2.42, it says they devoted themselves to the prayers. It says prayer in your Bible, most likely. If you look in your footnotes, it actually says prayers, doesn't it? That's what Jeremiah said. And Jeremiah's comment was, then why didn't they put that in there? And that, would, that would be troublesome. Well, when we get later on in the book here, we're going to see that it, be, it will be troublesome because not only is it, you're, you're going, what prayers... But when you get later in the book, you know that it's speaking specifically of Shakari, Mincha, and Ma'ariv. This is a temple sect that we're reading about. Three times the prayer, the Amidah, the Shema. If you looked at the Amidah, we're going to look at the Amidah in specifics. You have the Geniza Amidah, which is the oldest that we have 
There's better versions of it, but the oldest that we have is the Geniz Amidah. We're going to look at it in detail because when we get to the 12th benediction, there's a significance in this book of Hebrews to reading and understanding that 12th benediction. Okay? They're all in one accord in the temple. Verse 46. They're a temple sect. Their place that they went to worship God was the temple. Now remember what Matthew Henry said. They should be discouraged from doing that. Okay? But we're going to see as we go through the book of Acts and as we spend the next few weeks going through Acts, I want you to understand, I want you to watch and see if any of the apostles over the 30 years that follow do that. If they discourage believers from doing that. Because maybe they're wrong. And this is the way the Acts is usually taught. It's transitional. They didn't have the new God. They didn't know all the stuff they're supposed to know yet. Never mind that Yeshua had been with them for three years and they should have gotten it. But it's, it's, a, it's a form of evolution. Theistic evolution or, or religion evolution. Christianity evolved into a higher doctrines were evolved. After the first generation went away, then we got everything all squared. Well, if you know anything about movements, you know it's the other way around. The closest to the source is the best. If you're downriver, you might be getting everybody, everybody else's garbage. All the stuff that they're dumping in that river. Where do you want it cleanest? If you can get to the source. The source is Yeshua. His ministry, his teaching is the source. And so that closest to him is the best. This moment in Acts is the high point of our faith. Everything from there is going to be tainted by us and our own biases and whatever else. This is the high point. God is gracious to us. He will allow us to continue to have high points like the points in Acts. The context of the epistle of Hebrews is important for us to discover because it's not our culture. This is not our culture and that's why we need to work hard at it to discover it. Not because we want to make it our culture. Nothing wrong with trying. You just can't. Uh, You cannot live in the first century. So it's not about trying to make it our culture. It's about understanding the culture so that we can make the correct applications to what we read. Some of the traditional interpretations are anachronistic, uh, just like we read read some of what Matthew Henry said, and they discount the historical record that we have in Acts. You know, uh, if if it was bad, then they should have been told to leave the temple. Um, obviously, the very words in the book, the heavy to light relationship, the call the Homer, the light to heavy comparisons, which is a very Hebraic literary device. We're going to see it's used a lot. Yeshua used it a lot, but it's used a lot in this book as well. We're going to have to be diligent in our observation because, of our, because our observation requires diligence. We have to get through our own uh, glasses, as it were, to look at it. In the end, our theology may not change. I hope it doesn't. In the end, what I hope changes is us. Our theology should be unaffected by this. If we, if we, if we know and understand that Yeshua is the only way Nothing should change. Any final comments before we close? The, uh, we had Julianka, one, one other Hebraism in there. Uh, as we read chapter, you, you may find others too. As, as we read chapter 1, she immediately saw where, where she was said, you will be my witnesses. She said, whoa, that's Torah. How many? Two or three witnesses. Which is why when he sent them out, 
in the in the in the in the in the, in the twelve, and then in the seventy, he sent two and three. Now, never good enough to send one. Got to have two or three. That's good. Let's close in prayer. Our Father, thank you for your word. Thank you for your uh, patience with us. We are sometimes dull and slow of hearing, and sometimes our own uh, sin gets in the way. We ask that you be gracious and patient with us as we know that you are and that you be merciful to us and reveal yourself to us in your word. We pray in Yeshua's name. Amen. Baruch atah Adonai Eloheinu melech haolam Asher natan lanu Torah emet Rechai olam nata betocheinu Baruch atah Adonai Noten haTorah Amen Blessed art thou Adonai our God King of the universe who gave to us the Torah of truth and planted eternal life in our midst Blessed art thou Adonai giver of the Torah Amen God bless you. Remember, no class next week.